0: That's right. It's No Guitar Is Safe with Jude Gold. That's me, Jude. I'm your host. I like to interview great and inspiring and original guitar players face to face and guitar to guitar. Because talking is great, but fingers on strings, well, that's even better. That's even deeper. That's the whole point of this show, in case you're a new listener. We definitely welcome the new listeners. We're getting more and more of you every week, which I love. Feel free to join our community on the No Guitar Is Safe Facebook page where I always post exclusive pictures and videos from these interviews. Now, speaking of inspiring guitar players, today on the show is Kevin Cadigan. Now, Kevin Cadigan is definitely known success, you know, Third Eye Blind his band in the mid to late 90s, they got signed for what was then and may still be the biggest advance any unsigned artist had ever gotten as it was reported back then and they definitely knew a huge amount of success and those first two albums that kevin played on they sold over eight million copies especially the debut sold six million copies the biggest hit was probably this song semi-charm life funky bass line on there courtesy of orion salazar love that dude but back to kevin i'm going to argue that despite all that success he's actually under celebrated as a hero of 90s rock guitar or not just 90s any era of rock guitar see kevin has a brilliant and simple way of coming up with guitar parts that i think every guitar player should know about and that's what i want you to get from this episode What in the heck am I talking about specifically? Well, let me give you some examples. How do you think most guitar players would strum a D to A progression? I'm sure you're hearing something pretty standard and generic in your head right now, but let's listen to how Kevin strummed that same progression on the song Narcolepsy from the first Third Eye Blind album. I love it, man. All six strings ringing gloriously. The little, you know, soprano part played with a pinky up there at the top. But let's keep going. How do you think most guitar players would play a 1-4-5 punk rock progression? Well, here's how Kevin did it on Graduate. See, what Kevin taught me is that 95% of guitar players, when they're writing a song or writing a guitar part, they're trapped in standard tuning. They're taking the part that they hear in their head and they're shoving it in to this one tuning. Kevin, on the other hand, will completely customize a tuning to suit the song. So what he hears in his head, he'll then retune the strings until he comes up with something really cool, like listen to the intro to Losing a Whole Year. This is the tuning it's in. Have you ever played in a tuning even remotely close to that one? But this is what Kevin did with it for the song Losing a Whole Year. Steven Jenkins on lead vocals there, the band's founder. I had to let it roll to that first lyric just because what a killer way to open an album. That's the first song on the first record. Now, this is actually kind of an intense episode of No Guitar Is Safe. There's a couple of different themes going on. One is a very cool theme of uh, watching your friend blow up. That's right. I've known Kevin since we were both 14 at Berkeley High School in classical guitar class where we'd sit around all day and not do anything but noodle for an hour. Best class ever. And, you know, after high school, you play in a bunch of bands and such. And then I think when we were both in our mid-20s, Kevin hooked up with Stephen Jenkins to launch Third Eye Blind. And the first show that I went to, after hearing some demos, I think there were maybe 12 people there. Not more than 16 people. Little Saloon, somewhere in South Market, San Francisco. And the songs were great, but I was still kind of wondering, why are all the labels swirling around this band, apparently? For me, it was this one night that I was over at Kevin's apartment on a busy street in Albany, California that he played me a demo for background. That's when I got it. I was like, oh, okay, this is gonna be freaking huge. Sounded basically exactly like the album version, which is this. That's the intro.
1: Everything is quiet,
0: sincere, not For me, it was when the chorus came in. I was like, oh, okay, you guys really, really have a sound.
1: You come view, and, like
0: I used to do. and one thing I loved about this song is it shows you how great Open tunings, Kevin style tunings, sound with huge amounts of distortion and giant drums. Like this. In the
1: background.
0: I'm telling you, you guys, so many guitar players are stuck in one or two tunings. You know, I was one of them, of course. It's like you learn all your patterns and chord shapes. You're afraid to branch out because it's like that's all going to go out the window. But the reward is that you come up with parts you never would have come up with if you're willing to change the strings. If a part isn't really coming to life in standard tuning, well, start modifying it. Use some open string jangle. I swear, it makes things a lot livelier. I swear, if you like to write guitar parts, this approach is like a Narnia closet, you know? You go into it, and all of a sudden you discover a huge world on the other side that you never knew existed. Kevin, of course, perhaps maybe taking inspiration from his hero, The Edge, from U2, the band that he ended up opening stadiums for. We'll get to that. He would sometimes even use non-guitar instruments to create a guitar part, so to speak. When I first heard this song, which became a huge hit, How's It Gonna Be?, I thought this was some strange acoustic guitar at the top. It's actually an auto harp. Just press the buttons and strum. There's the lead guitar hook. Kevin always believes that there should be at least one lead guitar hook to compliment the lead vocal hooks and it's proven to be a good formula for him now if this episode has one final theme to look out for well it's a tough one and kevin really rises to the occasion to talk about it but basically after two amazing albums and an amazing chemistry between the lead singer in terms of creating music musically these guys were great together just listen to god of wine think that's open detuning. and wow when they were making music Kevin and Stephen Jenkins really had a chemistry but there was also a major disagreement which Kevin has spoken about many times before in print and in interviews and in the New York Times etc and he's going to go over it again here but basically Kevin really stood up for something that he believed business-wise this was a business disagreement and it ended up in him getting leveraged out of the band after the first two albums And what a tough day it was, you know. They had just played at Sundance in Utah the night before, and the next morning, Kevin comes down to the lobby, and get this, the band is nowhere to be found. But I have mad respect for Kevin, for standing up for what he believed in, and also for being willing to talk about it here. Obviously, the focus of this show is guitar, and we'll stick to that, but it's also part of the story and part of who he is, and he's not afraid to talk about it. The funny thing is, though, when I hear those songs that he and steven created it's kind of emotional because it just takes me back in that way that music can take you back and and the music just stands on its own even regardless of the disagreement that they had i mean just listen to the powerful songs they created So today we're headed over to 25th Street Recording in Oakland, a really amazing, amazing studio. I'm not making this up. The place is world class, and Oakland is like the new Brooklyn or something, just jumping off, where we meet Kevin for an interview. Halfway through, you might hear a little bit of background noise here and there as, uh, as our session was wrapping up. Other people were coming into the studio, but hey, we wanted to keep going. <laughs> you just can't stop this train. We were just on a roll, so we just kept talking and playing. We're gonna fly over there, downtown Oakland, where Kevin opens up our interview playing his guitar part from Wounded off the second Third Eye Blind album. Oh, beautiful, man.
1: damn.
0: Make me want to curse! Does that work? Totally works, nice man. Nice. I had to film that. I promise I won't be filming this whole time, but uh yeah, I mean, the, the stuff you do on the guitar, like, I know you don't believe me over all these years, but it's been such a huge influence on me and not just me. Like, you know, I've been involved quite a bit with uh, Musicians Institute, and I'm always surprised at how many students mention you as an influence. Wow. I'm like, you were like so two much. years old in the 90s. Not you, but the yeah. students. And they wow. still, they they still mention you guys all the time. They love that guitar. Hey, do you got a pick? Yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I just thought it would be a funny way to start the interview. I got some picks. I've been keeping a collection from all the previous interviews.
2: No, I mean, thanks so much. It sounds, that's just amazing to hear. It's, uh, it's, it's wild, you know. We set out to make that record and knew we were doing something special, but didn't know how long it was going to last. And I still hear those songs on the radio. From the first record, anyway. Absolutely. So uh, third Eye Blind. I was excited.
0: Yeah, man. It, I mean, really cool riffs. Great contribution to... I don't think people quite realize all the things that mm. you do, but hopefully today they're going to really see some of the cool things that you've come up with. First of all, I'm just curious. Do you have a sustainer on there? Because that started with the most beautiful feedback at the very front, and we're playing it like 0.02 decibels.
2: Yeah, actually, it does.
0: That's awesome. So, we are like way below bedroom volume pretty much.
2: Yeah. Get it to just do. You can have it. The note, you know, break up into a harmonic, uh, or just, you know, if this is something Joe was talking about. Your first interview, and by the way, <laughs> you know how cool mm-hmm. is this? This whole no, Sa- no guitar is safe podcast. Absolutely oh, love it. <laughs> cool. And really um, awesome. you know, listening to Joe just brought back so many really wonderful memories. Yeah. You know, from 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 uh, being thirteen. You know, some punk kid taking lessons from. Really, I mean, this taking lessons from. Uh, you know the equivalent of a Dumbledore. You know,
0: right? It's like totally. we
2: got to go out and do, you know, get Defense of the Dark Arts lessons for fifteen bucks a pop out in the woods with Dumbledore. Dude, that's and, totally what it was. You mean. know what I'm saying? I didn't. Remember Harry, remember didn't. the Phrygian mode, Harry. <laughs> nice.
0: Use it with the ladies. The Phrygian mode.
2: <laughs>
0: Use it responsibly. <laughs> yeah.
2: No, I mean, but you know, cuz when you're taking lessons from from Joe and I I didn't really, you know, I wasn't obviously a graduate student. He taught me from zero to enough where I wanted to go out and kind of like start playing in bands and doing things. And um you know, it it uh it, we all thought like when you your guitar teacher is always when you don't know how to play guitar and you're 13 years old and you have a guitar teacher and they do something on the guitar you're like, "Wow." This guy is good, you know? And we all thought, like, uh, Joe is, man, our, like, our teacher. And then we started to think, you know, if we start, I think Joe's better than Ingve. you know? Yeah. <laughs> and and you're like, yeah. he might be the best guitar player in the world. And we're all like, yeah, yeah. Of course, everyone who has a guitar says that about the guitar teacher. It turns out he is, like, the best guitar player in the world. So uh, we yeah. were so lucky were that there. we got to do that.
0: Now, what kind of teacher was he for you? You took so many lessons. Really.
2: Well, you know, I wish I would taken more, um, in, you know, in hindsight so I could – Gotten more badass, but he, uh, I, what kind of teacher was he? He was, he was fantastic, you know, and he, I think, you know, he touched a little bit on that when he was uh, in your interview before you cut
0: him off on that part. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> I know, I actually wrote him a letter. Like, hey, man, I listened back. I think I cut you off on one. Day. He was Sorry. just
2: about to talk about, and, and, you know, anyway. Um, no, it was really funny because he, I think, you know, he, he was doing these lessons and he was doing them for all different kinds of people. And we were i mean I'm really glad that I, I got it across that I really wanted to do it, you know, like I was thirteen years old, going you know, on fourteen, but you know I just kind of I started learning the u two stuff and bringing in some some edge lip riffs and stuff, and once I kind of like got it, you know, and he was like yeah hey, I, I got I picked it up pretty fast, then it just it became you know like well, let's see how how far you can go on the guitar thing and remember we were just coming out of the or we were in the middle of you know when it, you know woodchipping guitar was like the best thing you know so yeah um, f- speed speed and, and doing all that yeah totally and like man um, van
0: halen was out and then Ingve came out and everyone was like was right. trying to be faster than everyone else. Right.
2: So I was trying to trying to not do that so much because there were already people that could do it so so good. In fact, you were one of those people that could do it really good. You're the reason I never got good at guitar. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. If I, if, <laughs> I wish I could take credit for inspiring you to go in the direction you did because it's been, just like I said, a huge influence on me.
2: It was actually a guitar player magazine article that came out it was i think it was 1985 the edge was on the cover wearing a white shirt buttoned all the way up right you know and and i remember reading that and he was talking about how you need to you know do something different other guys could play blue scales 10 times better than him and you know so he was just like well i gotta find something that's my own and i was really trying to figure that out you know right. and and not and, and also become more get involved in songwriting more than than um um, being, like, the guy who's hired to play the solo in the band kind of thing.
0: And I, that's awesome,
2: too. I yeah. love well, that. So, so 15 so jo-
0: years later, you're opening for YouTube, but we'll get to that.
2: <laughs> yeah, 15 years later, I got to meet some of those idols. But Joe was, he was more than just a guitar teacher. I mean, he was, like, our philosopher. I and mean, that's why I brought up the Dumbledore thing, you know, because he was, um, he's certainly not as old as Dumbledore, no. but he has that wisdom of Dumbledore, you know. and uh, And he just was able to... He was, was able to be, he was tough, you know. I remember him getting tough on me uh, a few times when I didn't know certain things because I was out playing kickball or something, you know. <laughs> but, but it was awesome because in hindsight, I'm like, yeah, man, this guy really, really wanted the best, you know. Yeah. Like, like that fame, like the teacher in fame, you know. You got to pay and sweat, <laughs>
0: whatever that was. <laughs> well, you do good voices. Like your brother-in-law and sister are actors, correct? Absolutely, yeah. And you seem to have a little bit of that. I mean, these voices yeah. you're making are great. <laughs>
2: Thanks. I can do... No, never mind. I'm not going to start doing impressions in my guitar interview. Who, who, who can you no, do? No, no,
0: I'm not. Sure. Let's go. We want an impression. Okay, <laughs> anytime. Now, it's funny you should say... I mean, I know that I did... Bobby, Peggy, get on over here and help me with the lawnmower. <laughs> yes. Right? Totally. That's pretty... good. That's that guy. That's the guy from... Uh, oh. Not Family Guy, but... I don't know one of those shows, yeah. right? Dude, I, I... Totally. But when I first... I remember the day I met you, man, because classical guitar class at berkeley high was like the only thing we really had as guitar players and one day i was in 10th grade and you were the freshman and you showed up and me and Robbie had already staked the spot up at the top Robbie abkarian at the top of the stairs with the window mm-hmm. and you were you took the, the freshman spot at the <laughs> but we were either, either yeah. way we both had yeah. great acoustics right oh yeah I used to see you down there and you Dude. were playing all these 16th notes like you were playing like the edge and stuff and like in the name of love or something.
2: I was always wondering, I was always like, are they going to invite me up to the top stairs? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Are they going to invite me up?
0: No. Well, I was left all alone. I mean, I was kind of shy back then, that, and you were really shy, which is funny because you, when I gotten to know you, you have a really outgoing side. But back then, you yeah. didn't say a word.
2: Yeah, I was pretty shy. Yeah. You know, I, whatever, I'd be 14, right, going yeah. to Berkeley High. Every, exactly. every kid is a little bit like that. suppose but absolutely those were those were great days and it was so cool that there was a class like that and it was because of that class that i got to do my first play in in high school because they were the director and i was not in drama but the director was looking for someone who could play guitar and because i was down at the bottom stairs they didn't you know you guys were hiding up at the top stairs so i was like hello i'm right here i got picked (laughs) Dude, and uh, you've always known how to find the spotlight. <laughs> find the spotlight. <laughs> and uh, yeah. yeah, it was a
0: thrill to watch that happen. And of course, we'll get into all that. But um I do remember we you talking about. Like, okay, everyone was shredding up at the top of the stairs. But after a while, it was like, Jeff Tyson would be up there and Paul Baker. Jesus. And there'd just be all this, like... And Jeff was amazing with the Joe Satriani It style. was Hogwarts. He was doing like the... All those like, you know, super speedy shows, And I do remember like by the time we were seniors, you had made a really amazing left turn. We were at a party somewhere and you were, you know, people sometimes had cassette tapes back then of their four tracks Mm. and you Mm -hmm. played a four track and it was like the most, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not flattering you here at all. It was like, seriously, my impression was this is a complete composition with counterpoint and different melodies and there's all these ringing strings that's when I realized you were onto something totally different and really special.
2: Thank you, uh, man. I wish you had said that back then. Yeah. Oh, you know, just I was probably think envious, you could have been man. I'm thinking like,
0: "Fuck, I've been messing around with my." You must have for two years. I, I think God. you must have just been shy.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but thank you. And you know what it was? You know, I got this uh, like Fostex four track, and um, you know, I was really lucky. My parents didn't have much money but they they really helped they were very supportive of of musical things you know um anything musical it was you could have it there was a lot of belt tightening going on but um i was able to get a four track and just had an absolute blast with that. Um, doing things, before the four track, I was doing stuff like what Dave Grohl talks about. You know, you get uh, one of those old boom boxes with two tapes, and you would record something on one and then pop it into the ex- other one, and then it'd be, you know, c- kind of you like you actually your, did that. Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I would use it to make a uh, tape echo. You know, I would like record something, and then, um, well, not exactly tape echo, but I, by a form of delay in tracks, because I would record something, put it in the other deck, and then play one, like, just a little bit off the other, and then, it's amazing. you know, c- you know try to create some delays before i had a delay pedal and stuff Uh, but the four track was just a beautiful thing and so much fun to play with and that really started my love of of you know making music and recording it things are so different now and the tools that people have now are just insane like can you imagine being 13 years old and having logic on your laptop and just it'd be
0: unlimited i'm kind of glad that we had to like Go in and throw it down, and if you messed up, you had to the tape had to rewind that's for thirty true. seconds and all. Yeah, all like now it's just like command Zeke, yeah, command Zeke.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, and I re- I recently found a. You're absolutely right. There there was a certain joy in having this physical thing and doing physical, having physical stuff, right? Because that's what's fun. Having a, a a tape was something that you could hold in your hand and you could own and have pride over. And uh, when you end up with an MP3, it's like, well, here it is. I'll p- pass it to you and I'll, you know, blow it over there, you know, what do you, exactly. <laughs> what do, you do with it? So I recently found a box with all those tapes and I'm, I wanted to go through and, you know, go look, look through some of those, uh, those nuggets, you know, see what I was doing.
0: I'm starting to get a picture of you because, I mean, I've known you all these years and you're my homie and everything, but now I'm realizing, so you had a knack for the spotlight, but you also mm-hmm. have a great knack for recording picking up like back then i didn't realize you were doing like the like creating a delay effect by using a boom box which is totally crafty when did you go into the altered tuning direction hmm.
2: well i think you know it was um well there's obviously so much of what we listened to growing up had alternate awesome alternate tunings and so much with rolling stones and just killer you know alternate tunings uh but you know for me it was listening to um that that interview going back to that guitar player interview and, and you know it's pretty neat because you think about well when you have a magazine like guitar player and like we put these things out there and or you do these interviews is it gonna change anything or is it gonna and it absolutely changed me you know and i was reading that that edge interview it really inspired me he was talking about how he got one of these nashville uh pedal steel things right and um and uh, for their war uh, on, on their first record and then he used it was experimenting with it for his second record and changed the tuning of it and just kind of made these really cool slidey things and um, yeah. just these really great atmospheric sounds that i just never heard before playing a lot of first position chords it's great you know very identifiable but to the point where it's like okay what can how can i make that a chord sound different it's just not I need to I want it to sound bigger and I don't want it to sound like just a bar chord I want it to be different um, so that's one way also being in bands where you're the only guitar player finding a way to have the pinky open to to play some kind of melodic things r- with strings ringing out trying to generally you know play a bigger sound that's the you know what was behind that trying to get an orchestral vibe you know trying to um you know get the get the most out of it. And then I, I heard this lick by, well, I think calling it a lick is, is, is a disservice, but Dave Wakeling's English beat Save It For Later. He's got this, that, that song, maybe I'll, I'll tune to that. <laughs> So, so here, this is the, now, so here's the, uh, all right, so. Let me hear one string at a time. Well, it's very easy. It's just D-A-D-A-A-D. And apparently the story was he was trying to find Dad Gad and was just kind of playing around, didn't know what he was doing, and just kind of came up with, with having two A's there, which uh, was... Pretty ingenious, and he's told a story about Pete Townsend hearing the song and want Pete Townsend wanted to cover the song, and they couldn't figure out how it was how he was doing it because if you put that, you know, if you have it in Dadgad, you know, and you got that G there, it just doesn't work. And so they actually called him up. Like Pete Townsend called him up. And he had Dave, he, Pete Townsend had Dave brought Dave Gilmore over to like to try to figure it out as well. So the two of <laughs> them were like, I don't know how he bloody hell does it. You know? And it's yeah. just, <laughs> I mean, just, the, just imagining funny. that conversation with those two sitting around thinking how to play Save It for Later is awesome. So they actually called him up and he explained, you know, this is how you do it. And of course, I'm just listening to this interview like years later. But I remember I was in that same position as pete townsend and dave gilmore without being as good you know trying to figure out how did this guy do this you know what play it in standard tuning it just doesn't sound right and it's this cool riff this and i would defy anyone to come up with something better than that in this tuning with the the dad ad.
0: So wait, you got a looper pedal here, so you're going to show us both parts, I guess. Yeah, I am just going to... Such a great riff. Sometimes you get that little chimey, echoey thing. What's that a pedal? You get so
2: many pedals here. Okay, so that comes from the, and I'm trying to remember how to pronounce it, Noon I can't <laughs> say it That's terrible. Either. I should have, okay. It's um, it's the wet stereo reverb, yeah. NT, Noon It just creates the most fabulous reverb,
0: super
2: chi- shimmering.
0: it on as soon as i turn it on as soon as i turn it on it
2: you have to do that though oh you so man that's it doesn't work work to turn it it on first i know i know it should know right it really should so that's quite extreme you know uh it's it's a great effect but you've got to be subtle with it you know
0: but yeah you really put the california approach on the brit rock which i really like like that jangle you really went really far with that
2: yeah you know i love listening to um you know a lot of my earlier influences come from from england the the mod scene you know the jam the clash and you two and and all that you know but but growing up here also listening to you know funk and soul music and you know it was just a big kind of melting pot of ideas there funk especially well what kind
0: of funk were you listening to
2: well you know you you've got your Parliament stuff you've got uh you know if it really qualifies as funk but um, the Brothers Johnson you know listening to listening to that stuff it kind of it kind of in ska music you know it all sort of melded together we would take these long because everyone takes these long car trips and that's when they get exposed to music in the old days right the cassette or the H track would go into the station wagon while you're driving somewhere and uh, Our family would drive to la in the summers and we would um you know have get these eight track tapes at the gas stations and stuff (laughs) and or the flea market and pop them in and listen to it and one of this one of these tapes was the brothers johnson and the uh that that song strawberry 23 just undeniable amazing groove and i had no idea that it was suggy otis at the time you know and i don't think many people did you know and i'm so glad that now people can find that out and give him props because it's very sweet, and you know. So I just thought, um, you know, you're listening to that, and it just it's got this cool groove, and then all of a sudden, just this crazy, like the the car just turns into a spaceship, and you're just like flying away with this amazing harmonic solo thing that they do. It's just these arpeggios. It's just nuts. Yeah, so it's got that, that
0: flange on the whole mix or things. So it's all.
2: Well, yeah, the flange and the whole mix, but then when it gets to that part, well, what is it? It's like the, it was like, a oh, I got it, am in the wrong tuning. <laughs> That's a hazard One in your hazards, business. Man. So, yeah, it starts, you know, you just got that, that groove, you know, that, to bust into that spaceship, right? Three, four, and...
0: I think played it on on this Brothers Johnson version. I think it was yeah. Lee Rittenauer.
2: Yeah, that's right. He did. He did.
0: Studio bass and jazz.
2: Yeah, icon. yeah. I just I found that out just you know like a year ago. I, I didn't I didn't know. Oh
0: yeah. After a while, so yeah. that, yeah, years later, you start geeking out and going like, "Hey man, who played that?" Google. Yeah. Lee Rittenauer.
2: And that's what's so cool about technology now is you you can actually go back and give people props, you know, for that. One of the um another one of my my favorite riffs. Is the uh, from the Tom Tom Club like one of the first albums I ever bought, and you know I was always just drawn to like you know the rhythmic <clears throat> melodic stuff, you know that has that. And, um, and so I always thought Adrian Blue. Played all that stuff because he's credited on the record and did some amazing, wild things, you know, like the elephant sounds and crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I, I went back and, and was reading through the Tom Tom Club website and they were talking about the history of that song. And apparently, now I'm not 100% sure, but they say that this guy, this Bahamanian guy named Monty Brown actually played that. So I don't, you know, whatever that, whatever it is, it is it's middles. so good. And I hope Monty Brown caught you know paid well you know for well, coming up with up that one. one
0: little part in the middle maybe that was the adrian Belou part which goes, duck, 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 oh yeah duck, yeah duck, he definitely
2: bark. yeah no he definitely played on it and did some rad so, stuff all throughout that record you know yeah. but i didn't know that there were other stu- studio musicians involved with that Dude, that, was the jam. that was sampled a lot that is just the ultimate one of the ultimate right yeah so right. so those things and then that kind of you know that's gave me the sense of rhythm that uh I think it's lasted with me and the edge brought a kind of melodic ability to that or complement to it and then those th- things combined and you know the tunings uh, Johnny Marr was doing a lot of great alternate tuning stuff with and he was really funny because he when he he told the story about the the slide on on um how soon is now and that he completely forgot like what the tuning was for that and had to like reverse engineer it and
0: Oh yeah, dude! I, I have to kick your ass sometimes. I, now I've do so, so many songs where I totally create a custom tuning for the song, and then later I'm like, man, what was that? It's Kevin's fault. I can't remember how to play this.
2: Yeah, well, the most the most troublesome one was the F sharp, A, C sharp, F sharp, G sharp, E. Is that too many notes?
0: I don't know. A, <laughs> C
2: sharp, F sharp, G sharp, E. It's funny because our my guitar tech at the time, you know, would tune tune the guitars to that tuning. But he only knew standard chords, you know. So he would have to go out and do sound checking with, to make sure the guitar worked. <laughs> and
0: it would right. sound absolutely awful. It was
2: really funny. So you're so waiting now. Think,
0: you're in. Show.
2: So now I'm using, I'm going to pick up one of these Line 6. very uh, James Tyler. James Tyler. Line 6. Yeah, there exactly. Yeah. Very well-made guitars, I must say. I picked this one up on Craigslist, just wanted to try it out. Oh, Tyler's great, and, and
0: for those of you who haven't seen this particular one, it's a beautiful gold top. Almost like a Les Paul and a Telecaster kind of mix together.
2: Yeah, and what's really nice is you get these noisy P90 pickups, but then you can just kind of turn them off by going into the uh, electric mode, into the battery, into the digital, the, the cyborg mode. But, um, so,
0: okay. so that is your sharp tuning.
2: Scene? Yeah. And then people would know that from losing a whole year. The, When I was actually writing that one, um, I was having beers with the singer and, and playing that and just kind of doing that falsetto humming and the, the beer spilled over and just, i um, losing a whole beer. <laughs> is that what so, you are saying? Yeah. yeah, because we were just kind of going, ooh. What did you actually sing on the record? The uh, well, losing a whole year is on the record, oh, okay. of course. But actually, our manager wrote a lot of the lyrics on that one. Eric it, so, Yeah, yeah, he did. It's You're one of my favorite lines. Which one was his? Um... Uh, the uh, Well, one of them was I took your stuff down in the basement when I found out what the smile on
0: your face meant. I totally thought that was all Steven, but I love Steven's lyrics as well. Yeah, no, they're very good. Now, wait a second. You were saying your tech would pick it up in that tuning, and all he could do is play G, C, D or whatever. Right, so...
2: So, it would be like, that one's actually... The best part would have been he would do that.
0: Okay, Kevin so, just played a D, an A, and a G chord.
2: Yeah, the D actually sounded kind of nice. Actually, that was a bit of a, like a... Okay almost a police thing but if you play this um here's not here's standard it almost works
0: that's totally jazzy yeah so So you're just switching between non-digital mode and then going to the custom digital tuning that you have stored in the very yeah
2: and i'm just i just did this you know thinking this would be an easier way to you know to do it for this interview but you know I, I think you could in a pinch really really do this you know um, I had a, a you know when I was able to do this stuff for real it, I had a guitar tech that had you know seven guitars with different tunings and it was a real headache for them and switching to something like this is definitely possible if you're playing in a quiet setting like we are now you can still hear the standard strings ringing out. And they do conflict and make some weird um, dissonance, but it's not so bad actually. I think I think it works. They've done a really really fine job with this. All right, I want to
0: hear some more losing all year. So
2: right. So then the um, the verse part of it. So again, you know, just kind of bringing that rhythm in there, but that F sharp, that E turned up to the F sharp allows me to just kind of have it ring open and create some cool pull-offs. And,
0: and play the so. intro again, too. I mean, that album sold 8 million records or something. that's the first thing you hear when you get that album. That's the, that's first, the first thing, thing the you first hear. song. Yeah,
2: And I had a filter running through it and um, some other magic that uh, Eric Valentine put on that one. And I really pushed for him to mix it because he, you know, we had a great, well, we had but Tom Lord Algae was mixing, was scheduled to mix the record and he did do, mix a lot of it, um, but they were, and he did a fantastic job really, obviously, you know, it sold a lot. But there are a few songs that, you know, I just really still loved the way Eric Valentine mixed them, you know, and I somehow I don't I, I don't know how I was able to convince people, you know, because I really, you know, I found out I didn't have much, much influence except for just my ideas. I think it was a good idea. And Eric Valentine, I'm so glad because what he did was he just brought the bass like right up in there. And that song has just got a lot of a lot of complimentary bass stuff happening in it which is a big part of why it works.
0: Now, it was just amazing to watch you guys go from, you know, little demo tapes all the way up to selling just millions of records. But first, just you were just mentioning Eric Valentine. It was also a big break for him. He's become such a huge producer done Good Charlotte, Slash, Smash Mouth, all these huge bands. But you guys proved to be kind of his breakthrough band, I think a tea ride with Jeff mm-hmm. Tyson before yeah. that
2: yeah well it was it was I mean it was fantastic and I uh, um, as far as his breakout yeah I guess you know he had a legitimate cool studios called HOS or hunk of shit studios I wondering- oh I just got the explicit thing now now I'm explicit <laughs> Thank you, Eric. Look, I I always wondered what the S stood for, Kevin.
0: Now you've explained it. Yeah.
2: H-O-S.
0: Now I understand.
2: H-O-S Studios. And uh, we did a lot of our, most of our pre-production there. I did a lot of guitars there. He had a lot of great equipment. And I guess he got it from T-Ride. He also, I think, worked with Joe Satriani a little bit. So, yeah, I guess we were kind of like the big mainstream thing for him. But Smash Mouth was right on our heels. So that was absolutely fantastic. And... You know it would have been great to have him on board for the second record, too, but the we just I, couldn't do it.
0: The thing I remember about him because I, I recorded a bunch of songs with him at Zenner, is he we would spend like eight hours getting a bass tone or eight hours getting guitar mm-hmm. tone. we would do he'd try a million things he'd put the guitar through the Leslie's he had like two mm-hmm. Leslies or we're in
2: six yeah <laughs> we had a lot of fun geeking out uh I guess I'm lucky you know in that he we seem to. Kind of have the same ideas as far as tone and how it should go, and um, we would try. He had this little Ampeg Jet amp that he convinced me to use instead of my Marshall head that I was so proud of a, a few times, right? So, so that was um, certain fun moments like that. That's when I learned, okay, you know, use the you want the the power amp tubes to really you know um, get get the growl, not so much as the pre and all that stuff. So it, it was just a it was just a great time in the studio with him really focusing on on the craft the few times that we were all doing stuff together you know when we had to do the drums obviously you know and uh, skywalker ranch was an amazing experience uh recording there the drums in this massive concert hall that was Brilliant. just this ridiculous thing that, i mean just absolutely beautiful and amazing but apparently you now the story goes is that they couldn't get orchestras to come up there because you'd have you know tuba players getting drunk driving into ditches and stuff you know because of windy skywalker ranch road is like you know 15 miles down from the highway and to get 150 people or whatever it is into into there uh was tough so so there was really like we were working with an engineer that worked there and uh we were able to Rand Kleiss and dave gleason and we were able to to get in there because of them and uh it was fantastic. Now I did the guitars for God of Wine in there in the big concert room. Oh really? And uh that was a beautiful moment just hearing it in that ambient space with no other reverb really, you know. So recording guitars there you know, that's when the band kind of got to hang out and gel. But a lot of the time, we were we were we were pretty separate. And there were other, you know, we we actually rented some some really great amps for the first record. We we had a you know a really beautiful Fender basement that we used a lot. And you know, I definitely you know was pushing to use my my, my you know my Marshall head a lot because and I and I was able to to achieve that a lot because you know you want want your own stuff that you kind of like remember. Oh yeah, I played the, this on it. You know, you don't want to. Point to some rental in a magazine and go, oh, that's the amp that we played, you know? So it's always fun when you have your own stuff that you use for your recording when when you can and when it sounds good.
0: Well, you mentioned God of Wine. I don't know, maybe you would play that right now if you like. Uh, that's the one I usually go to when I want to show somebody, like, no, check out the magic of open tuning. I just love that riff.
2: Oh, thanks, man. And that's just a. Uh, it's not. A lot of people think it's, it's dad gad. It's not dad gad. I don't really um groove with that gad that much this is a this is open d just straight open d it's d-a-d-f-sharp-a-d
0: just created this whole tapestry. Like it's it's like it's cool. I can see almost how your creative process works where you stack all these different parts.
2: Yeah, that's totally what I what I did and you know, what I love to do. So a lot of that stuff I just did it on the four track and record some melodic ideas and then some of those ideas would end up in uh in the songs you know
0: now it was really interesting to watch you guys blow up because i watched this whole thing start from like conception basically i mean i didn't know steven when he first started his first couple songs but all i remember was you had done with a few different bands you played like maybe some modern rock kind of stuff maybe a punk you were doing some hip-hop stuff there for a while yeah san jose or something all of a sudden, I start hearing that there's this band that has label interest, quote unquote. <laughs> and you're playing, and you're playing with yeah. like Stephen. And the next thing I know is they got Orion Salazar on bass. Yeah. Now I was like Orion, but I knew him from the clubs playing with Fungo Mungo, which is one of my favorite club bands of all time. They got yeah. signed to Island Records, and he's a super a source. Yeah, Damien Gallegos like, and those guys. I used yep. to, yeah, man, I used to headbang to those guys mm-hmm. every weekend and do a lot of gigs with them. And then all of a sudden, he's like doing pop with Kevin And I was like, what's going on here? So how did how you hook up with Steven?
2: Well, we met through a mutual friend and he had heard me playing on some some demos. I was in a different band and I saw him play a showcase for uh, it was about a year before we started working together. He was doing a puckin Zen. It was him and uh, like a rapper singer guy named Zen. I had Herman Chan might be his real name. And I, they were doing that. I guess that, that project dissolved, and out of that came the idea for doing Third Eye Blind. Now, this was probably, this is like late winter of 93, somewhere around there. You know, once everything, everyone kind of got together, we didn't see the, here's what the thing was. It, there wasn't much going on at all. I mean, there was like, you know, label interest was something that everyone put in their ad or when you're trying to get something going. But there wasn't much going on. There was a management deal with um, direct management these guys who managed the Counting Crows and the Counting Crows had just taken off in like 92 massive huge beautiful record and these guys managed him and they also managed the Puckin's End thing so they got on board and um, the drummer of Counting Crows his name is Steve Bowman is Steve Bowman he he Left the band and in like '94. I remember meeting with him and you know playing his stuff, and he was like, "Yeah, you know, uh, this would be great." But it was also like this guy just come out of the, one of the biggest bands in the world, you know. Right. And it was because of Steve Bowman and the juice that he had coming out of that big band that we were able to. We made we made a little demo at his buddy's place in Hayward, and we were able to get. uh, our show publicized in the San Francisco Chronicle, you know, and that was like the first time anyone had been in the, in the, in the Chronicle. And it was really, it was like a picture of us, Steve Bowman uh, and the rest of us, Orion and Steve, I forget everyone's names (laughs) now. It's been so long now, but it it was a four piece. And it was really cool to see our ourselves in the, in the, in the newspaper 94. And it was, it was really about like, here's this band that's playing. Oh, by the way, you know, this is, this is the, the drummer of County Crow's new thing, so it was really, you know, it was it was really Steve Bowman that got that's how we we got some our first press, you know, and then he went on to do some bigger and better things at that time, and uh, and so we were. Drummerless again, and then so Steve and I actually started playing acoustic upstairs at the Paradise Lounge. We were doing that every Thursday nights, and just playing at the Bison Brewery in Berkeley, and doing things like that as we were writing songs. So you know, what was this big? Like we've got label interest and all that stuff, just collapsed. I mean, there was nothing going on. Direct management said, you yeah, know, nah, never mind. You know, because they had gotten involved from for a different project, and so we just kind of started doing our thing then, and we we were able to open up for Suede. It was just Steve and I at the uh, at the Fillmore um, yeah, doing acoustic. You were there for the yeah. Suede thing? Oh, that's yeah, you awesome.
0: You borrowed my roommate's bar- guitar or something. Blue, you brought that blue guitar. Remember? I
2: didn't have an acoustic guitar. Yeah, that yeah, makes borrowed,
0: sense. I brought a Hector Perez. He has a great company called Music Orange now. They do. Seriously, way back yeah.
2: then? I mean, because I, maybe I needed a pickup or something. I'm yeah, pretty sure I had an acoustic. acoustic. Yeah, that's okay. I
0: mean, I forgot that until this moment. That
2: yeah, and so we went and we did that, and it was pretty it was it was awesome. I mean, just two dudes up there, um, you know, in front of you know people that wanted to hear Suede, and no idea who we were, you know. But we went, won them over pretty good. And I guess now we're in mid '95, you know, and a little earlier that. Then it seemed like '94 was a very long year, you know, because when you're slogging away and you expect things to kind of happen and nothing's happening, but we we kept slogging away and. Then we finally got another drummer, uh, the one that's there now, and uh, yeah. you things remember were. Remember where you got him. I think I think that was you, actually. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you asked. Was, I
0: asked you. Do you know any drummers? <laughs> he was my, you know. Brad Hargraves, he was my, uh, in my class, I had a jazz class at UC Berkeley, I knew him from the music program, and he was, he was just this musical guy, whatever he did sounded good, whether he played jazz or... Yeah. And you guys had, I sent him down to audition for you guys, wasn't there?
2: Yeah, you did, yeah, and, um, he was very, uh, he knew all the songs and was, um, ready, and, uh, and, uh, that was, uh... And obviously he got the gig. So that turned and he you know, so he came in and we were at that point we were we had all pretty much all a lot a lot most of the material that was gonna go on the first record. Now, of course, we did some demos with with Michael Urbano. Michael Urbano, who was just absolutely one of the this was right after Steve Steve Bowman. We were lucky to get another awesome, amazing drummer, Michael Urbano. And um so he's actually on the record. He's on the record, he's on like four tracks, I think. Might maybe even maybe even up to seven tracks. Um, How's it going to be? Certainly for one, that that groove that you hear, that's Mike Urbano. And that was just taken from the demo. So we were really lucky to have him. He was a veteran dude. He was playing with Cracker. It was always like, oh man, he's in Cracker. Like, we better listen to what he says because he's in Cracker, you know? And we none of us had ever done anything important, you know, like big. And we had this drummer from Counting Crows all of a sudden and this other drummer. All of our drummers were famous, you know? And we weren't. So it was kind of this backwards situation. And I think, that might, you know, I think lead singers usually like their drummers to be not the most famous person in the band, right? Right. <laughs> so we tried, we did some showcases with Michael Urbano and we had technical mishaps. There was this one ridiculous showcase that we played that we're called Cocky Pop and we had all the labels there you know uh, and, and um, my guitar just fizzled out I didn't it just it, and, and, and you know there are all these technical problems you know this is the kind of stuff that happens and you can't just like quit after something like that happens but you know another band got signed that night from San Francisco it wasn't us I forget who it was I got signed but they were actually pretty good and I found out later that that I was my sweat had dripped into the pickups and shorted it out I mean it doesn't it still doesn't make I'm still wondering like is this possible but anyway I guess so they had to do that and and so luckily we got more opportunities. I think Urbano then started doing other things. He's like, screw these sweaty <laughs> guitar people, you know, um, they got to get their gear together, man. You know, get your gear together, man.
0: Well, I learned so much watching this whole thing because first of all, you go back to that Fillmore show where you opened for Suede, just you to you and Steven on a, um, acoustic guitars. What I noticed was in between the songs, when he was talking to the crowd, it was just as interesting as when you're playing. Like he had this thing where you're just kind of like, it was edgy. Like, what's he going to say next? Mm-hmm. That was, like, I was like, God, there's more to being a musician than just singing and playing. Like he was in, he had control of the audience and he was just the opening act. The other thing I really remember is, uh, the first time I ever saw you as a whole band was at that club on like Folsom street or some little club. There's like a little cowboy bar on Howard. There was like 12 people in the audience.
2: Yeah, no, there were, and they would listen to what became hit songs and they would just have their back backs against the wall going whatever you know and that's that's the other thing people have to remember it's like you know you can go out there and play your play your heart out and you know don't expect folks to just be immediately like it's the Beatles you know like oh uh, I like that song you know and get all into it because it takes a while you know and they need to they need to become familiar with it they need to hear it a few times and um, yeah that was certainly the way it was there were a few people that maybe got it immediately but it took a while
0: yeah and then uh, I mean later I saw when you guys had really blown up at the Warfield playing the same songs like you say and everybody in the audience was singing the words and i was like i get it but back then i was just used to seeing club bands like fungo mungo with had your bass player orion in it and i was like this is what a show is supposed to be like how come third eye blind here has all this label interest but there's 12 people here and they're not even moshing or that you know that was that that might have something to do with Eric
2: Valentine's great engineering and production skills. And we had a really, we were able to get a really good sound together. Now, now we were getting some, some label, intro. we had, you know, there there were maybe more than 15 people, you know, I'd say they're probably, we got up to, after Steve, you know, Steve Bowman with that, you know, when he was, when that thing was announced and he was like, he's playing with this band, we, our shows went from 12 people to like 150 people. Yeah, yeah. This you know, one
0: I was at, though, I'm telling you, it was 12 people. You don't. And then it went notes.
2: back to 12 people and Steve Bowman left. And then, <laughs> oh, and, then, and then Mike Urbano, all the Cracker fans would show up to see him. And then, uh, so uh, we went up and down depending on what famous drummer we had in our band. <laughs> That's great. So
0: I remember the moment, the, I remember the exact moment when I got Third Eye Blind. Like, I was like, oh, I see now. This is going to be fucking huge. The moment that I got sucked in, we were over at your house. You had a pad apartment down on Marin in Albany. And you played the demo of "Background," and I was like, "Okay, like the production, Stephen's lyrics, and voice." Do you remember that lick? I mean, obviously, you remember. Can you play it right now, or I can't even remember what tuning it's in.
2: If you give me a moment, let me just uh, remind myself for a second here.
0: Okay, here we go. Maybe I'll try to sneak in a little vocal melody. An outro on it too. That was really another sweet little moment of t-
2: Oh t- t- yeah, t- yeah, yeah. God, I um, you doing
0: it live at the Warfield Theater when you guys really had your breakout hometown. Yeah,
2: give me a second. I'll, I'll try to remember it. So it's um
0: and detuning. Now I but I mean I remember after a while things were starting to get some interest and you did a showcase at SIR and this time there were about 50 people crammed into this little cocktail party gig. And I remember they offered you guys a big chunk of change that night, and I was like, "Kevin, you guys got to fucking take that." Mm. It was like three hundred grand, but you got- yeah
2: no—it ended up being a much better deal. And there were things, you know, what really changed it for us was Epic Records gave us an opening gig uh, for with Oasis, right, At the Bell Graham Civic Center. And that's once, after we did that gig, that was that's what changed everything for us locally. And um, you know, they they did that because they were kind of interested and other labels showed up for that for that uh that show and the managers and for oasis those guys were saying oh these poor bastards you know they're going to be torn apart out there you know and it was like i don't know if they were irish but in any case they might have been but um they they were like hey guys you know just don't worry about if they throw stuff at you just you know expect it because that's what they do to opening acts you know here in these crowds but actually you know it was it was a it was a great show and and we we won people over and you know it was uh it was a real game changer for us obviously because that's what kind of took us from san francisco band and and we and again more press and this time the press wasn't just about our drummer it was about um it was about the band
0: and then I guess you ultimately got signed to Electra Electra records
2: yeah ultimately we got signed to Elektra. Uh, How uh did they offer? they were you know well, I'll tell you, I, I didn't, you know, it'd probably make me vomit if I, you know, it, it, the thing is, it was really, it was, it was a, it was a pretty big deal altogether. You know, if you count what, what it, you know, all the, the stuff like the touring and, and packaging and, and the, and the promotion and things like that. But what it meant to us, like what it meant to the actual band members was, and, and I, it wasn't even going to, this wasn't even going to happen, but I, I had to like demand it to happen that each band member get $7,000. We got 7000 dollars. It wasn't, they weren't, we weren't even going to get any, well, when I say we, these are decisions that were being made on the management side, you know, about what band members should get. And I think the total, it was like a $1.2 million thing. And I'm going, yeah, we're going to get a fucking, bo- we're going to get a bonus, right? You know, <laughs> you know, so seven grand, and then it was like 2500 or 2000 a month to kind of go do the other thing so that we could put the rest of the money into the band and into promoting and into all the other stuff that we had to do. So again it wasn't like you know i look at a guy like eric valentine who said he well he used the money for t-ride to fund this big studio with all this wonderful equipment and here we are signed to this what's supposed to be a massive record deal at the time and we're not really making we're not taking there's no not much take-home pay there at all i remember i used that seven grand to go and take my girlfriend to uh you know on a little bike riding trip in in europe and and then we lived pretty frugally after that it was uh it, it was actually pretty hard times i mean you know because we weren't making anything touring people say think you make a lot of money touring but touring was just a losing endeavor you know for for a long time it's really I feel for those bands starting up now because uh, it is it's it's when you're starting out and getting going, you know, it's you're not you're not making any money. You're just barely making it ends meet. And in fact, labels have something called tour support because that's what the band needs. It needs tour support. If it doesn't have tour support, how are you supposed to get out there? Luckily, we did have those things now, you know. I signed a record deal and then I found out someone else owned the band, and eventually I could not square those two realities together, and that's why I left, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I remember that deal was in Bam magazine or whatever. It's the biggest deal any op- any new ar- brand new first time artist had ever gotten signing bonus. Obviously it didn't go straight to your pockets.
2: You know what was really neat was Sylvia Roan, the president of Electra, was very enthusiastic about the band and about myself personally. She was I remember meeting her when before we were working on the deal or kind of when we just, you know, we were checking each other out and, and she was just like, she loved what she saw, you know, and, and what I was doing. And it was, it, it definitely felt, you know, if it, it felt great to hear that from her. And I remember her saying something, she's like, you know, get ready to roll, baby, you know, get ready roll. And that kind of stuck in my head. And, and I remember thinking, yeah, hey, roll, roll. And I started thinking about those words and, and that's how graduate came about because that kind of rolling, R- that rolling um, rhythm, you know, with those chords, the uh it's time to roll, or, you know, yeah, right. like, get
1: ready to roll,
2: you know, that that was in my head. <laughs> And then it's "Can I Graduate," but initially it, that it turned into "Can I Graduate." After, you know, the initial melodic idea was like, you know, just shouting out and I remember you guys played.
0: I think didn't the lyrics change again years later when you played it on the American Music Awards with Dick? Yeah,
2: Clark. yeah, that was so stupid. No, I think say? I think "Can I?" I think we we thought it'd be really funny if we went out there and, and yelled "Can I masturbate" instead of "Can I graduate." And, you know, we got a couple chuckles, but it, it was a really bad thing to do for the song because, you know, this song, it was, it was an opportunity for some great exposure. Somehow in England, it was sent over, it was sent out over, sent over to some radio stations without, without a video. And it just kind of took off and it, it literally just took off on its own. And then radio stations just started playing it from the actual album, you know, so, so, so that when we got to play that song for, I think what you're talking about is the, the, um, American Music Award or People's yeah. Choice, yeah. one of those. America? I remember Dick, it was Dick, Dick Clark. Thing, yeah. yeah, and Dick Clark, you know, that was an amazing opportunity for that song that, that was cut short because they ended up kind of bleeping it out. And, and I think maybe we would have, um, I think we undercut the song by, by making a joke out of it at that point. And it wasn't it wasn't a good idea. But Dick Clark was fun to me. That guy has, has the most foul mouth. No was way. awesome because, you know, he's all just so shiny and shiny all american and, yeah like buttered popcorn you know yeah and then he'd come over and just be like oh that's fucking," you know and <laughs> just complaining and it's like oh wow he's so good. so it was so cool because he's just he just um was like hanging out with the musicians you know what i mean so he's like had his yeah, i'm great. hanging out with the musicians i get to say all these i get to talk rough and tough so he was he was he was so fun to me
0: it was amazing to watch things just blow up for you a song everyone had a semi-charm life on the radio which was a huge hit And then before too long, you were opening for the Rolling Stones or you two, which one was first? The Stadiums Like Yeah The biggest bands in the world
2: Yeah that was amazing That was so That's a, just An absolutely I remember getting the news We were touring In, in um, Amsterdam actually And uh, Playing this old church kind of like We were on a, clap, a Crappy club tour there In this converted church I guess that's what it was And we were in the basement With all these le- I remember the leaky pipes I remember everything I remember like, like, like What is this leaking on my head You know like Drips of water and stuff and, Or god hopefully, Hope it was water right (laughs) i don't know hopefully mostly water i I know that well there's you know what happened we were playing at the fillmore you know the 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 headline act gets the bathroom upstairs and the when you open you get the bathroom downstairs well apparently our toilet had completely overflowed one night It was just disgusting and the people guys downstairs we went down to say hi and they were like oh man it's like these pipes are all messed up it's like dripping down on us they thought it was just water but I'm, so when it started dripping on me that night and the manager said hey guys i got some good news i was really hoping that it wasn't going to be well it, it would have had to been very good news you know and you know it was it was stunning you know but when, 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 when you what get you news you? like that you just, what did he tell us? Well, he told us that dinner was ready. I don't know.
0: <laughs> was it the U2 or the Stones? He
2: told us that it wasn't it wasn't piss leaking on us. No. Oh. <laughs> but when you get news like that, I'll get to the news, but when you get news like that, you just remember you remember the sights. You remember the smells. You, <laughs> you remember everything that just kind of happened where you are and everything that's happening in the moment. And so we're in this little basement and and our manager's like, hey, we're going to, you know, you guys got the you 2 and you've got Rolling Stones you know you're going to be doing both and you're going to be flying around crisscrossing the country doing it and it was just like what what did he just say so you know those were that was probably the, the you know the highlight you know for sure of of it all really and um, especially meeting you too, because, um, you know, people say, oh, I, I you know, when, when you meet your idols, what are they going to be like? But I, we had already heard enough about them to know that they were going to be awesome. But we just didn't know how, how awesome they were going to be. And they were so cool. Like a first night, you know, and I, maybe some, I think someone else told this story, too. I'm not sure. But they brought down, um, Adam Clayton brought down Guinness and they told us how to like, make, make snake bites and black and tans and and it was just so so cool that they would you know were hanging out with us and um, took us on their plane and just just really great guys the rolling stones we got a photo with them and we were lucky to get that they were a little less like you know into into who their opening band was
0: did you talk to you too much what did they tell you I mean
2: what was oh yeah man we talked to we talked to we talked to them quite a bit um, as much as I would say you talk to any band when you're when you're on the road you know it's like you, people think you're you're just it, like all together all the time but but you know most of the time People are very busy, or they're just you know waiting to get on stage, or they got other things on their mind. And uh, we were lucky enough to to hang out with you too. And you know, I remember Bono would give us advice. And in the Edge, uh, he said something funny about the auto harp, um, the auto harp that I use for uh, that I wrote. How's it going to be on? He said after the show, he goes, Kevin, when you brought out that zither, the Edge went all Doctor Spock underneath that hat of his, you know. <laughs> And I'm like zither. What, what 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 did I do with the zither? Because they called it a zither, you know. Right. And uh, so that was voice. that was kind of well. <laughs> no, it's not really. Bo- no, it's that's not,
0: a perfect Irish accent. I mean, like, yeah.
2: yeah. I mean, he's obviously a cooler Irish guy than what I just did. But if you could imagine a cool, was the doc <laughs> 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 The edge went all Doctor Spock underneath that hat of his. Room. Wow. And um, and I'm like, w- really? You know, the idea that the edge was lit. You know, like giving a crap about what i was doing on stage was just amazing and and so that was that was a that was so a we don't have
0: the uh, auto harp here, but could you take a moment? To show, remember, show us the uh, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, and the the thing about how's it going to be? That's kind of cool. So I, I, my neighbor, I borrowed her auto harp. She had this really. I was just like, what is this thing? I'd never seen it before, and it was really cool. It had 15 chords on it, and you could just kind of <laughs> press them down and just play with your right hand. I actually had to flip it over because it's meant to kind of be with your strummed with your left hand or something. The way it, the way it 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 it, it works. So. Um, or to have your hands crossed or something. So I, I kind of modified a little bit and started playing around with chord progressions, and I came up with that chord progression, the <laughs> which um, on the otter hop sounds actually you know completely different when you do that. Yeah, it do that like you're um, B a flat. Piano. B flat, but you know, what was cool is like you know experimenting with instruments like that allow you to, you know to opens up a lot of different possibilities because I would n- not norm normally have done done like an F C B flat kind of um, progression you know it just wouldn't have been something I would have my fingers were trained to do in, in standard tuning you know you kind of lock it locked into these grooves and it can kind of ends up playing the same stuff or your riffs sound the same so having that auto harp allowed just kind of opening up different possibilities and and i think that this is also a good example of how you can just have real simple chord progression and what really makes it is having a little hook on top you know my rule with with third eye blind was always have to have you know vocal hook and instrument and a a guitar hook you know they need to work together and uh without both of them i don't think it would have been as uh, as strong so here's that um i'll just i'll just kind of loop it yeah
0: Perfect. Yeah, I love that, man. You did it. You added it to a really nice hook too on I I don't know if it was Stephen that wrote that song. Uh.
2: Oh yeah. Okay. So that one. Yeah, Jumper. That was. You know, we would drive around listening to Catherine Wheels, and they had that song Black Metallic. The um. It was like, uh, what was it? It's the color of your skin. The skin is black metallic. You know, so that's the kind of the progression was from there obviously different melody it wasn't ripped off or anything but that was
0: the inspiration that could you play the hook on that I remember that so yeah I remember Orion had the killer bass line at the end and then you come in with another one of those guitar hooks wait oops
2: yeah great bass line uh, not played that in a long time.
0: <laughs> yeah, me It's a great tune. Um, so just for a second, you know, so that's so cool. You're playing the auto-harp part on How's It Gonna Be, which when I have heard it, I thought that's a really cool-ass sounding acoustic guitar. I didn't even realize at first that you had done that on auto-harp. So, yeah. And the Edge is over there checking it out, huh? Growing ears. Did you ever talk to Bono?
2: I mean, obviously yeah, yeah. he
0: did, but did he ever give you any advice or anything?
2: Yeah, he said, Kevin, don't buy a house until the live album can't tell you how many bounds of, you know, buy the house and then they got to fill it with Chinese rugs. And I just remember, you know, wow, I just gotten a bunch of uh, rugs and I had gotten a house, so I was screwed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you got a few houses, actually. But I just, huh? What's that? It was entertaining to watch you buy house after house, buy your mama house. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, whatever, it's, it's a thrill to see that happen to one of your friends, just going for the ride, you know.
2: Yeah, well, I wish I'd listened to Bono. Yeah. but in my defense he gave me that advice way too late you know yeah. it's like you, dude wanna... where were you man no it was absolutely wonderful and they were they were so cool and we were with them when they got the news that mike michael hutchins uh you know in excess died and that was that was really sad for them unfortunately you know they were good friends and it, that was a, a shock to everybody anyway
0: yeah so um those are some pretty big stages to hop on you know i'm one of my favorite bands a few years earlier and that was Living Color and I'd seen them at the club and they were amazing and then they got the gig opening for the Stones and it was so psyched I went I bought tickets and I saw it but then it was weird like the EQ wasn't quite right the, the stadium was so big it was like mm-hmm. it was a trip for them to like connect with this crowd and people are still getting their seats and shit what was right. it like opening for these giant bands
2: yeah well that's the thing I mean you you, <laughs> you know I think everyone wants to hear that it's just just like the most amazing thing ever and which you know meeting them your idols and and having that and knowing that your career is possibly in that trajectory is really amazing but the actual like nuts and bolts of it you know is, is is weird i mean you're you're really i mean talk about you know when you're on that when you're doing a stadium thing those guys are just so separated from every you know from their fans and uh you know i think they do a lot to connect with their ramps and all that stuff but you're in this 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 massive building and you're riding around in golf carts and it doesn't, it's like, where are we playing at music or what's going on? You know, it's hard to kind of get your bearings and we would go on and there would the lights would be, would be up. I think maybe we were able to negotiate that there would be, we'd get a little more or something. And we for the U two, they were so cool. We we were able to negotiate that we could use their 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 ramp. I think uh, James Valentine called it the ego ramp. Or yeah, run yeah. fives things. The runway, um, right? The runway or whatever it was. The ego runway. Yeah. Um, they were so cool to let us use that. So we took advantage of of the whole stage, which was which was really funny. And what was what was hilarious though was comparing the Edge's guitar rig to my guitar rig, which looks. Like something like this, but but actually, I think I just had a wah pedal, I had an overdrive pedal, and a digital delay. You know, and I and I and I, and I like glued them onto a piece of wood. Right. <laughs> and there, there's a video somewhere of me going back and forth between these these two rigs. Eventually, I ended up getting a nicer rig. But what was so fun about this opportunity happening so early was that we were still so scruffy and lame. You know, we hadn't we were good, you know, but we hadn't gotten all the gear and stuff. So my guitars were still all Funky and 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 I have it was like you know they're looking at us like oh my god these poor people you know because we had these literally like wooden yeah. pedal boards and stuff like spray painted black you know <laughs> and uh, but that's what made it so so kind of cool at the time it was it was so new you know what was and ed- the food was amazing.
0: There you go. It counts for a lot when you're. On hey the man,
2: like when you're on the road, and you're used to. I remember, you know, eating that. I'm sure you guys have a name for it. You know that that those deli trays that, are, that come with the little plastic things on them and.
0: Yeah. Uh, They've been sitting out for five hours, but you're hungry. You're like, man, I'm gonna risk it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> no. Yeah. No. When you're living on the per diem, you know.
0: What was Edge's rig like?
2: Insane. I mean, just completely insane. It was a. Uh, it looked like there's pictures. You can go online and, and look at the pop 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 tour. And it's like I think he might pop Mart. Yeah, he 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 might have a, something different now. But he had this. It, it was it was like a you know a, I don't know. He's like he stood in the center of a. It's like he stood in the center of this octagon or something. You know, is this. <laughs> It's way too much for any one person to control at a time, unless he could float in the air. And what was so cool, though, and what I learned, something kind of a neat production thing, was that he had all these Vox amps on stage, little little Vox AC-30s. I had them turned very low volume, though, you know, very low volume. And and they, they, they had just a really nice tone. It wasn't blown out and uh well that's a whole nother science right there getting getting stage tuned. but they but they this was before bands started putting all their stuff under the stage or or behind the stage they were still right up there and that was really cool because you could hear it when you were we would watch them by the side of the stage
0: yeah i mean i just can only imagine what it would be like standing right there because he has such a stereophonic sound and so many ricochets and
2: yeah you know that was that was funny because that record was you know i remember you know th- they were pretty nervous because it was a, they were spending a lot of money on that tour and it was a Around like 90, what was this? 97, 90, when that when that came out? 98. Their fame sort of was going on a, a, a downhill thing. There, I mean, it, it obviously shot right back up when they came out with with a beautiful day. But uh, I know that they were getting a bit worried about it, you know. And I, I remember called a couple of people. I said, "You got to see this tour because you know, it might be the last U2 tour," you know. I, don't, I just don't know. There were there weren't a lot of people going at the time. I mean, some of these stadiums were. It might have had something to do with the opening act. <laughs> <laughs> maybe they should have got a better act, but you know, the Edge had this thing he would do every night, not every night, you know, because they would play. When we went to, to Toronto, the Sky Dome. It was like two nights at the Sky Dome, you know, packed. But then you go to Miami or something or, or some other place, and it was maybe half, you know. And so the Edge had this thing he would do at the packed stadiums. So he'd be like, "Can you hear me in the back?" You know, and you know, it was all like, "Yeah," a you know, big crowd. But when we were in Miami, he goes, "Can you hear me in the back?" all two of you. <laughs> awesome. And it was like laughs. Did you
0: ever so interact with him out. or talk with the edge?
2: Yeah. I mean, I basically just told him how great he was and, you know, and then I'd ask if, if, uh, he could pass me the scone and, you no, know, <laughs> well, he, hey. no, no, we, 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 uh, we talked about music and, you know, I, I think he knew that I, that, I, that oh. he was one of the big inspirations and, um, we, we didn't, um, we didn't after michael hutchins you know kind of kill himself they they sort of retreated a little bit but it was uh we had great chats you know about music and different styles i think he definitely felt my style was had i used more of the you know with the you know using more of the strings you know i think the edge likes to have that kind of you know used a couple strings at a time you know very tight and concise sound i was just kind of like blowing through all six strings and pounding the guitar hard so a little bit Different, different in style there, but at the same time, I definitely got a lot out of that philosophy of just you know getting a few strings to ring out right and and a very you know detailed approach to it.
0: Yeah, I love it. I mean, playing tunings the way you play makes six strings sound like ten. I mean, or bigger. You know. Oh, so, thanks,
2: man. I mean, that's what I was hoping. And when you're the only guitar player in a band, I think you know, going back to that, you for for many songs, I was the only one playing the, the guitar, and you just have to try to create the biggest sound that you can. And that's one way to Help achieve it.
0: I remember I saw one of the the final shows of the first album tour and uh it was really cool. You guys had a bar set up on stage or something where he, you had us up there, and you handed me your guitar and one song or something for like four bars or something, which was really cool. And then I guess at the end of the night they would lower it was the last tour, so they kinda of punked Even there. You guys had the boxing mic that would lower down. Remember this? Oh
2: that's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There was, like, yeah, there was some 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 uh, ridiculous stage antics like that. My my favorite was when I got to um we had this thing. Or at the end of, I think it was background. I would, uh, you know, take the guitar like a like a rifle and and shoot it, and then the singer would fall down, and then the lights would go. That that was always something I'd look forward to doing at the. <laughs> That's cool. Really Steven sure. would fall down. Well, don't you, you don't remember that? Uh, well, yeah, it was kind of like very later in the game, you know, but it was, and it looked cool for the, the audience loved it. You know, it was kind of looked like I shot him and then he fell crumpled to the yeah, ground. Yeah, I mean,
0: yeah, yeah. He definitely, you guys had some cool moments that had nothing to do with necessarily having fancy effects or. Right.
2: Thing. And, the, but there were also some ridiculous antics too. Like we did the tonight show one time and, um, I guess someone thought it'd be a cool idea if you would wearing a straight jacket, I think it might have been for How's It Gonna Be, if you Google How's It Gonna Be Tonight Show, or, and and but the straight jacket wasn't tied in the back, so it kept like, its arms kept coming out, and it was just looked silly, because it, it, a straight jacket looks silly unless it's actually, you know, being used as a straight jacket, and even when you use it as a straight jacket, it still looks a bit silly, doesn't it? These are just the minute, minute things that you remember that you just laugh at. But, uh, yeah, we, we tried to, you know, do things that were fun and entertaining. We used to have, you know, a, a pinata at our early shows. We had, um you know, throw candy out to people. And, you know, you just got to do st- I'm sure millions of bands are doing that all over the place and have been forever. But um, trying to come up with, with little fun things stupid things to do
0: now I remember yeah they lowered that thing at that show and the, okay. the first one wasn't actually the microphone it was like a large dildo oh I don't remember that And he just turned that around was... and kind of looked at them and then they were snickering and then oh, they then they lowered the real microphone for him it was <laughs> okay. like a boxing mic like Get yeah. ready to rumble yeah yeah that's right <laughs> it was like we yeah. were the only ones could oh see I didn't catch I <laughs>
2: yeah I remember hearing about that joke yeah
0: you were probably in the front of the stage but yeah. me and Adam were in the back watching. Yeah, that's that's a good joke That's a good one.
2: Yeah, and your tour managers, those guys always have to, you know, have their jokes that they play on people.
0: So next came Blue, the second album, and um, you were we opened the interview today. You were playing Wounded, just beautiful, the harmonics and all that, and. How how was that?
2: Well, you know, the second record was, it was, um, it was a real challenge because there was a lot of uh, business friction and, you know, going on still with the band, kind of going back to signing a record deal, finding out someone else owns the band, and then trying to reconcile those two things, you know, and trying to get some ownership for the band, trying to, you know, get us vested. And it it was... um, by the time I signed the second record deal, you know, I really uh, was told this was going to happen soon. And, you know, so we were kind of like going through that and we weren't really playing too much music. You know, um, we hadn't, uh, the songs that we came up with happened over a period of about 10 days when, um, you know, the singer came up to my, my house with a, uh, with a, with a recording engineer. And we started demoing out. And the one thing you know, that we were able to do was just come up with stuff really fast and so, and work really quickly. And so a lot of that stuff just kind of bang came together. I mean, at least the songs, there were a lot more songs that didn't make the record, but there were the songs that did make the record happened during that, that like 10 day session. And I um, mean, because we had to get, we had to, you know, Sylvia Roan pull this aside, you know, at one point and said, look, you know, you've guys got to, you know, make this work. It's not going to work without the two of you and, and i i definitely agreed you know so we had to you know put our differences aside and for that for those 10 days just just create and uh, wounded is one of those songs you know a darkness um there's uh it's my favorites camouflage you know all kind of came out of that those sessions
0: must have been some pretty intense differences if it was that hard to get together yeah. to do what you're supposed to do which is Make more hit songs.
2: They were intense differences. I mean, again, you know, it kind of goes back to I loved the whole idea of, you know, being in a band, you know, and um, the thing that got me into it from the start was my my, my sister, Frances, when I was um, 13 years old, she was 19. She was going, she went back, came back home to go to college, and she had this boyfriend who was 20 years old, and he was in a band, and they would come over and they would um, talk about band stuff, you know, and they would talk about like, um, you know, w- w- you know, what kind of gig they were going to try to get first and da 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 da. And I just, th- I just thought I'd kind of like, like listen outside and just thought it was so cool, like this idea of just kind of getting together with a bunch of guys and jamming and creating stuff. And, um, oops, I just stepped on my water bottle. And I, uh, I remember, you know, that was, I would just kind of gotten out of learning guitar with Joe Saturday, so I was kind of branching out on my own, and lo and behold, they needed, they were looking for a guitar player. But remember, like, I'm just this 14-year-old, maybe 14 at the time, punk kid. They're all in college, you know, and they're starting a cool college band. And But what they did allow me to do is they allowed me to go along to their auditions for their guitar player. So I, would, I was able to go along for that, and I brought my guitar and my, you know, my rig, and what I would do is, in between them auditioning these guys, I was able to, you know, jam with them. So it's like, you know, okay, well, we're waiting for so and so to show up, so let's just kind of jam some stuff with Kevin, you know. And so I'd, and this is this is this is the recollection that that they would tell me years later, you know, how it happened. So I'm not just making it right, up. Right. Right. So we would um so I would jam with them during these intermission periods and then apparently when they went back and listened to like what guitar player they wanted to do i think they did like four guitar players a day they were like who's this guy like which one was this and it ended up being one of our jams from the <laughs> rehearsal thing so they're like, like that's kevin and so um i just that was mike marsh and uh and gary kaufman these guys and and they really helped influence a lot of my music too because i got these cool mixtapes from them you know like you want to be in a band well you got to listen to the who you got to listen to listen to you know early bruce springsteen you gotta listen to all this stuff and so they were kind of like the other wizards you know at at hogwarts there so okay so i i kind of won the audition that i wasn't trying out for which is really cool and then they let me like play a couple gigs you know and so how so my first band really was with some college guys cult of bigness i think was the name and and they had a song on Calyx, and it was just so so cool and I got to play a gig at this CD bar called the Sound of Music on Turk Street and um, I think they had to tape off a little area on the stage I think that the owner was kind of like what do you guys bring a kid for you know and uh, it became I think what they did was they eventually the uh, my sister's boyfriend who was in the band you know probably it must have at some point must have kind of went what the hell is my girlfriend's younger brother doing in our band <laughs> like, like that's got to really suck you know like the last person you want in your band is going to be your 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 girlfriend's younger 13-year-old brother when you're you know like some cool cool college dude so in retrospect it's just so funny that I even got to do that and it kind of that's how I got this ethos of the what a band is and these guys were you know it wasn't like um you know, and you'll get ten shares, and you'll get fifty shares. You know, it was it was like a real band kind of vibe, and that's that's what I I, I was attracted to that that sense of that brotherhood. You know, Third Eye Blind, it, it was like that for a, a a while. You know, but then the business end of it crept in, and and it became kind of like like Guns and Roses sort of is now. You know, I mean, I'm not. Pr- I don't know all the details of that, but, you know, I thought I was in a band. Turned out it wasn't a real band. So, so those were the big differences you were talking about, you know, and those are pretty big differences. I thought the band should have some, some of the, some of the pie too. And, you know, and they kind of made their own decisions in that regard. And I made a, you know, some calculations about what they might do and because it really was going to require other guys stepping up too and saying, hey, let's all kind of get some ownership here and some security, but... It it ended up not happening that way, you know, and people make their own decisions, but, uh, it was great while it was a band and it definitely, I did get that feeling that those guys, when I was in that first band and and with, you know, those college guys, um, it lived up to my expectations. I would say I did, I definitely did get that. I remember that guitar player cover, right? I'd look at it with the edge and I was just, my sister actually told me, she said, you know, you know, like I'm going to be on the cover someday or something like something stupid like that, but you have to say things like that to yourself or else you won't get anything done. You know, you've got to, to do that. So I, I might have said, you know, looked at the cover and be like, I'm going to get there someday. And then, of course, the edge spoke back from the page. <laughs> You're fucking mad, Kevin.
0: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. You guys obviously had a huge run there with those first two albums. You've headlined all over the world. I remember you had some videos put together, and huge festivals in Asia and all this stuff and you had some good singles off the second album. What ultimately happened? What was, the I remember, Sundance Music Festival or Film Festival you played out there? Well, okay, you know, we were...
2: It's delicate, and it's difficult to talk about, but... Um we were, what I thought what we were doing, we were trying to distribute shares of this corporation because the band is a band and then it became a corporation. So I was of the mind that the guys who are in the band should own the band. I mean, that's kind of the concept. And, you know, unless your band's name is, if you if the band is John Schmidt, you know, and you're playing for John Schmidt, it shouldn't be a surprise to you that John Schmidt owns the band, you know, because you're playing for John Schmidt. But if you're playing for a band called lark or something, you know, and you're not getting paid as a person in a band and you're kind of contributing and doing your thing, then people, you should have uh, a stake in it. I mean, it's kind of common sense, right? I mean, most, I, I think. And
0: you were writing a lot of, co-writing a lot.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, so, so that I was of the, that was, I was of the mind that that's what we should do. And, um, and I picked up the newspaper, one day and uh, this guy had done this joel Sull- sullivan had done this expose of the third eye blind and the whole thing and dove into the bank accounts and uh, you know found out that shares had been issued because i was always hearing "Well, shares haven't been issued you know it's just that we got this path through pass through corporation or whatever and it kind of turned out that yeah you know every, it all had been taken you know like everything was going through this account that no one in the band had ownership of except for one person you know so, you know, that that didn't that didn't um, sit with me well, well, put it that way. So, le- you know, leading uh, I I kind of said I'm not signing any more contracts until this is done. You know, I keep I keep getting told we're going to do something, I'm not going to sign any more contracts until we get it done. And lo and behold, um, Electra presented us with an EP con- a contract to make an EP, and I resisted because ha- the other problem hadn't been fixed. I was really caught between a rock and a hard place here because I really wanted nothing more than just to keep playing music and doing it, but I had been, you know, kind of doing it at the expense of my own, you know, uh, <laughs> dignity or something. So I wa- we were in a standoff, you know—and I wasn't going to sign that EP deal unless the shares were issued to the band members. And there's all sorts of numbers between zero and a hundred and three guys were getting zero and one guy was getting a hundred. I didn't think that was appropriate. So that was the impetus for, for the, for, you know, what happened there. So, you know, I just, it just wasn't, uh, it it looked like it wasn't going to get resolved. I wasn't really holding the cards, you know, that I needed except that I had, uh, you know, brought a lot of creative energy and a lot of other things to the table, but I didn't, you know, my, I wasn't on the bank account. So, um, you know, I, I think, you know, the, there was a decision made and the other guys went along with it because I got a little more short, short-term short gain, you know, got paid a little bit more but uh, they all became independent contractors and uh, and it became a corporation with independent contractors and I just didn't want to do that so I said, forget
0: it. Right. I just remember Adam calling me up and saying, dude, turn on the Tonight Show right now. And I think this was the day after Sundance. You had just played in Sundance and, I, then I, and I'm and i like, okay, they're playing on the Tonight Show. They've already done that like five times already or something Yeah. and then to my heart, horror, and there was another guitar player, Tony Reginelli. I know.
2: Well, see, that was the night after, so that was kind of, the, I guess, part of the plan, right? I didn't know about this plan. My my thing was, like, we're not going to do the EP. I'm not signing any more deals. I'd already signed two, and, uh, you know, which was ridiculous, and everyone, everyone, later, they would say, like, well, you should have just sued right there and then, young man. You know, it's like, well, easier said than done, you know. I, It's not my first thing that comes to my mind, you know. It's like, I want to you know, I wasn't gonna gonna sign any more of that stuff. So they had to make other plans around that. And um, I guess their I plan was to debut some a new person on the on the Tonight Show. I didn't know about it. I mean, I was planning. My plan was to do the the uh, the tour you know at least like like do the tour like that's what i wanted to do i didn't want to go in the studio again just wanted to go out and do the tour and felt an obligation to definitely to do that to do that tour so no matter what i figured we could do that and the ep really threw a wrench in uh, in at least my plan to hang hang in there and and play for the fans and and make it make it work at least as far as that goes and then try to you know cuz anything like that that's done can be undone you know it's not like you know you shoot someone and they're and they're dead you can't take the bullet out, but you can undo what I thought was wrong with a on paper. You can just come up with a new piece of paper. That's what I thought should have happened, but it didn't. So they went their other way, and it really, be, at that point, you know, it really was you know, the John Schmidt, you know, band. Right. And um, it might have been an illusion for the other guys, but, and I remember telling him, like, I tried to help him, you know, especially the bass player to say, like, you, you know, you got to get your publishing started out. You got to do these things. And uh, sadly, it didn't, you know, he didn't do that stuff and, and ended up, Without any ownership of any of the songs or anything, you know, I'm very proud that I was able to at least get you know hold of my ownership of the of the publishing, get the hold of the publishing, and do, by doing doing so, by actually mailing in the copyrights myself, you know, for for the songs that I worked on, and uh, that was something that you had to you know. So I know this is like super boring for everybody, but you know this is <laughs> this not really not really uh, fun stuff.
0: And well, so many bands go through this kind of stuff when when they have huge success, as you guys had. I mean, you had you were on two giant multi-platinum albums and were very influential to a whole generation of young guitarists, which is pretty amazing.
2: Yeah, and I definitely what I take from it is uh, you know all the good the good times. You know, it, it was it was really unfortunate the way it, it ended up. I think there would have been a lot of great music. You know. Oh yeah.
0: Well, I re- I'm just as a fan it bums me out because I love the way you and Steven work together I think think you guys are just re- re- you, I think you guys were really great together like the, his lyrics complemented your riff so well
2: yeah I mean look if I had just joined a band like if I you know am asked to go out and play something you know obviously that's a hired hand situation you know but it just I don't know what else I could have done in that regard I certainly couldn't have just um, allowed myself to be defined as a independent contracting hired musician after everything we've been went through and trying make that band work and then signing a deal and everything it just seemed kind of inconceivable really you know just like how did this happen you know i still kind of scratch my head on that one a little bit but whatever you know what was cool and and it was always in the back of your mind when you get signed and you get to make a record you're lucky if that record gets to come out at all you know and to have it be a success is just beyond and so i knew that i had to really pour everything i could into into that that's why i was still writing up to the last i mean literally like god of wine graduate we were we were still tracking you know and um background was actually going to be left off the record the manager wanted to save it for the next for the second album and i know and i was like there's no way this is this has to go on the background has got to go on that record and if that if that hadn't happened i don't think it would have ever made it on on a record at all but that's why there's 14 songs you know because there's you know i had that definite sense that we've got to just we might not get a second chance here you know so it wasn't just because of not trusting you know but it was also you know when you we we knew that this opportunity was uh could be unique, you know. And um fourteen songs was was pretty ambitious back then. Right. That was a
0: full C D. There's one song that we kind of skipped over that I don't want to forget, which is Narcolepsy. Beautiful lick, beautiful tuning.
2: So narcolepsy was um I had been, been researching this thing called post-sleep paralysis. And, uh, because I had this, th- sometimes I would like wake up and, but it was, I wasn't really awake and I couldn't move my arms and it felt like, you know, like something heavy weight on my chest. I've
0: experienced it. the scariest
2: shit ever. And, uh, so I was just, like trying to figure out what this was. And, and apparently it's like, it is associated with narcolepsy. It's not the full thing, but it's, I mean, I definitely, I don't have narcolepsy. And it's funny because that song, when that song came out, like it became, you know, people who did it suffer from that horrible, horrible narcolepsy were you know they would find some solace in it but anyway so i'm sitting there telling this story and then we we just uh, steve and i just started kind of coming up with themes around that being on a freight train and you know, at the helms kind of describing what that was like and, and the song was called narcolepsy that one is in the same like open d tuning except for the east the e-string stays at e So,
0: to go to the rock part too?
2: Anyway, then it just gets all (laughs) punky.
0: (laughs) Yeah, loved it. Well, I always appreciate you know you definitely hooked me up with some cool bits of you know just some nice things from all your success. Like uh, you introduced me to Steve, and I ended up giving him some guitar lessons. You introduced me to MJ Guitars, and they gave me some great guitars. I still work with them to this day.
2: Oh man, they are just fabulous. Those guitars.
0: You got one here today. I see, and playing it earlier. That's the one with the sustainer that you started with, very first song we heard. And then another nice thing you did for me was I remember you got invited. You were playing a solo gig at the California Music Awards, Bammies. And uh, then Eddie Money was also there to play Two Tickets to Paradise. And you were like, you know, I'm cool. I'm just gonna play my own solo set. And, and so you kind of threw a bone my way and I got to play lead guitar on <laughs> Two Tickets to Paradise that night, Kirk Hammett from Metallica came out. I was yeah, really it. Yeah, that was so
2: cool. And, and you know, wasn't that just an amazing time in music? I mean, that was, you know, it's like, you know, that movie, The Matrix, when they say, you know, we decided on 1999 or whatever it was, because <laughs> that was the height of civilization. I mean, you could certainly make a case that that was for music, you know? I mean, mu- music's very accessible now people have you know all the apps and everything but you know as far as like for musicians and you know ability to you know make money and tower records you know like physical retail stores and because that whole award show is thrown by you know tower records and a band and bam magazine you know but tower records helped front the bill and uh you know how how amazing to have an award show where they have like you know best bass player you know nominations and they have best drummer and best guitar player and i was lucky enough to i lost to tom morello like three times which was so cool you know lose to tom morello that's 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 i'm proud of that
0: yeah that well you're right that was a great time i mean there
2: was other people on the list too it wasn't just me and him no (laughs) (laughs) other awesome guitar players but you know to have an award show that just focuses on musicians is so cool and i don't know if you'll ever see something like that again right it was certainly unique
0: that was amazing yeah i mean
2: there's so many great guitar players that were a part of that. Um, another Berkeley High Guy, Zan McCurdy. Yeah, you know, Cake. Love Cake. Such cool, you know, guitar parts in that.
0: A funky band, too, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I love your new song. You have a new... Tell me about this new project. It's called... The tune is Those Who Play Guitar Must Win.
2: Oh, well, you know, look, I've been doing a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. I, 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 I consult with um, people who, you know, want to write songs and doing the production work and stuff. I haven't been doing a lot of well I, I there was an album project that I was working on a, a, kind of a ma- exploring for me to band again and it kind of it, it kind of didn't work. You know a lot of stuff happens that uh, obvi- you know more times than not it doesn't doesn't work out. But you know always got to try doing new things and be you know always open to new possibilities and working with different people and all kinds of capacities. But you know I've found myself lately doing more uh, production stuff and more you know just I I guess I'd say behind the scenes advisable stuff so I wanted to do something for this interview that was kind of like oh here's a new guitar thing so you can go on the, um, my website kevincadigan.com or um, Facebook my Twitter to Kevin Cadigan and SoundCloud is Kevin Cadigan too I know I'm like I really have to get better at this stuff or find someone who's, who is good at it but um, it's up there and it's just a little guitar nugget you know just, just kind of threw some, threw some stuff down and uh, a little some tasty
0: nuggets I hope. a lot of layers on it
2: yeah. I mean, you know, it's with that losing a whole year tuning, which is kind of a fun, fun tuning to play around with. F sharp, A, C sharp, F sharp, G sharp, E. But it's called Those Who Play a Guitar Must Win in the spirit of this whole, you know, awesome podcast that you're doing that no guitar is safe, right? So it's kind of a joke on that. I don't think, I don't know what people are going to think, like, what is he talking about? It's the title of, a, of a, a guy named Bob Randolph. He's a Berkeley poet. He's like 90 years old. And this is one of his poems. And I don't think he meant like rock guitar players must win. I, use, I think he is referring to lute players, maybe, or zithers players. The idea that musicians should inherit the earth kind of thing. I, I go along with that, right?
0: Me too, man. Yeah, I think music is like the sixth sense, you know?
2: Yeah. No, it has that ability to transport you and rise above the mundane.
0: that you take away from this episode the realization that sometimes it's okay to forget your scales and your chords and go for something brand new, especially if there's a real simple progression. If you're dealing with pop and rock progressions, you know we're talking about one chords, four chords, six chords, five chords, well, you've got to make your part interesting. I really hope you'll explore changing the tuning on your guitar in one way or another, or even capos or baritone guitars. All these things. So many cool ways to liven up a guitar part. I don't make this show about myself, but just for an example, here's the part that I came up with for the outro of Kathy Richardson's song I'm Back off her brand new album just came out. It's called Macrodots 2. Here's I'm Back the ending. Can you tell what tuning that is? Me neither. I'm going to have to relearn it, you know, and figure it out when we play that song live for the first time. And I kind of like the part. It's got kind of a hypnotic jangle. Makes me happy. I mean, it's just less generic, I think, than if I had done it in standard tuning. And it rings. I just love ringing strings. Don't forget to say hi on Facebook at No Guitar Is Safe. Or you can say hi to me on Twitter or Instagram at Jude underscore gold. That's right. My name is two four-letter words separated by an underline. Thanks again to Zoom for the H6 Handy Recorder that we use for these shows. Without it, the show would sound like this. And thanks for uh, Guitar Player Magazine's support in helping me do this. I've enjoyed working with Matt Blackett, Art Thompson, Kevin Owens, and Editor-in-Chief Mike Belinda over there. For fifteen years and counting. Cheers, buddies. Here's to another fifteen. And thanks to Bill Amstutz in New York. At our headquarters. New Bay Media. Making things happen behind the scenes. And if you're new to the show, well, you're in luck. You get to binge listen like somebody binge-watching Breaking Bad for the first time. Go back and check out the first eight episodes. Some great stuff in there. You know, James Valentine from Maroon 5. Brad Gillis talking about crazy adventures with Ozzy Osbourne and Night Ranger. Greg Howe. So many players already and so many more to come each week. I'd like to close the show with a quote from Joe Satriani's episode, the first episode, where he says, Remember, keep it alive till you're 95.